you know, slow and steady wins the race. If you rush things, it's easy to make mistakes or to have your risk tolerance go higher than your actual risk tolerance, etc. You're listening to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is all about helping you grow your real estate investment portfolio and live the life you want to live. Come grow with us and join our community at therightclub.com. And now your hosts, Sarah Larby and Alfonso Salemi. Hey, Right Club Nation, it is Sarah Larby here. And before we get started, I wanted to ask you a quick question. Have you checked out The Rock yet? Well, that's our Right Club online community. It's a place where you can find your real estate investing and business answers and network with like-minded people. And we've got interactive forums, all the podcast episodes, hours of videos, a wide range of real estate investing training and education tons of great information. It's free to join. Be sure to come grow with us at therightclub.com. Now on with the podcast. Welcome back, Right Club community, to another episode of the Right Club podcast. I'm Alfonso Salemi, and I'm here today with my co-host, Laurel Simmons. How are you today, Laurel? I'm doing just great. I mean, it is it is winter when we are recording this, and um, the snow is falling. I just wish it would stop, but you know what? It's winter in Canada. What can I say? It's, that's what yeah, happens, that's, right? Yeah, exactly. That's probably one of the only normal things that are going on these days, <laughs> that it's snowing in January in Canada. At least we can point to that and say that that's, that's some type of normalcy that we're having out there. But uh, hopefully this is part of your normal routine, listening to the Right Club podcast. And we're back with another episode here, and we have an amazing guest, uh, James Null. If you haven't seen him on our Right Club community or at other events, you're in for a treat today. James, uh, I love how he said it, is young in human years, but very aged in real estate years, has a lot of experience out in Western Canada, originally from Edmonton. And uh, yeah, uh, amazing experience of how he's been able to grow his portfolio, help others grow their portfolio, and just come from it as just a, it just sounds like a very just calm approach, an understanding approach. And there's a lot to unpack in this podcast. So I, I, I hope uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. And there's plenty more of this as well, too. And Laurel, uh, you know, we know we have so much content information uh, for the whole Right Club community. Yeah, yeah, I I think that uh, that James really, yeah, I think he's just he's got a lot of quiet wisdom. Is the way I think I would put it, right? Just quiet wisdom, and uh, you can tell that yeah, it hasn't always been uh, smooth sailing, but he's done really really well. And hey, that's that's what we all aim for, right? You you just you put one foot in front of the other, you have a plan, and you work it, and you don't rush it. I think that was his big message. Don't rush things because there's no reason to, right? Absolutely. Anything worth having is worth waiting for and setting it up properly. And sometimes, you know, the old adage, measure twice and cut once. Uh, you know what? Measure several times because it's always better to do that due diligence, check with others. And that's what this community is all about. Maybe it is something that you think is going to be great. And then you talk to a few people and maybe it's not all that it's cracked up to be, um, you know, and it, it has to be your own personal choice, your personal preference, what, what you love doing, what you enjoy. And uh, yeah, today is, is a great uh, conversation on that. But uh, for more of these conversations, check out therightclub.com. If you like today's chat, rate, review our podcast. We just found out we are in the top 1.5% of podcasts in the in world, the world. Of all of all podcasts ever made in the whole wide world. So thank you to all those that are listening, that are you know rating, reviewing us, sharing with friends, family, colleagues, uh, and it's helping us get that message out there that you can customize your life. And uh, we hope you enjoy the podcast today. 
Yeah, and it gives us a little bit of encouragement to keep on going too, right? Because we all like to we all like to hear good things, especially right now in, in the state the world is in. So thanks to our listeners, we are right up there. But anyway, Alfonso, I think it's time to go to the podcast, don't you? To the interview. Let's do it. Okay. James Null, welcome to the Right Club podcast. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me on your show today. So you're out in the wild, wild west, right? That's right. We've got uh, offices all over Western Canada. We've got a presence in Edmonton, Vancouver, and Kelowna. So I'm in the Vancouver office today during this broadcast, and we do business all over Western Canada. So um, we should just let people know that when you say the office, you are a, a realtor. Like that's that's your... I don't want to say your nine to five job because I suspect there is no such, well, I know there is no such thing as a nine to five job when you're a realtor. But I also, um, from what I know of you, it's more than just a, a, a career. It's like a passion with you. Like you're, you're so enthusiastic about it. And um, I think one of the reasons why you're so enthusiastic about it and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the, it's how you got started, right? When you were just a babe in arms. And so why don't you tell everybody how you got started in as a real estate investor and, and what happened after that? You betcha. It really is a fun story because I didn't really have many aspirations about getting into real estate when I was in junior high, high school, et cetera, it really happened in university. I went to university and as I was graduating, I was just chatting with my dad and talking about what was next. And he said, Hey, are you thinking you're going to stick around Edmonton for a while? And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't really see myself going anywhere else. And he said, well, if you're, you're living in a room in a house with a bunch of your buddies. I bet you could buy a house and rent out the rooms to your buddies. And then you own the house and you're making a little bit of money and building some net worth for yourself. And like, maybe you should give that a go, see if that'll work. And I said, sure. And sure enough, I was approved for a mortgage. I had some cash kicking around because it was a primary residence. It was only 5% down. And that was, that was accessible to me at the time. And boy, it just went so well that uh, I thought, Hey, I bet I could duplicate this and, found a way to scrape together the money to buy another house on the block. And, you know, for that chunk of time, it was like we had our own private frat house. It was me and my friends living in a house and they were paying the rent and it was causing my cost of living to be lower. And we had a great time. And uh, that just sparked my love of real estate. I started reading real estate books, going to real estate meetup events, going to real estate conferences, just digesting whatever information I could. By the way, that was before YouTube and Facebook were invented. So it really was all about the books and conferences back then. And uh, I did everything I could to learn as much as I could and just started buying a few more places, flipping the odd house here and there. And gosh, I just loved it so darn much that I needed to get in even further. So I got my real estate license and started a real estate practice. And uh, that's served me very well to get to where I am today. Yeah. So that initial that you were living in that initial property that you were living in, you said you, you had bought it or you were already living there or how did, like walk us through that? Like you were living in the property. Uh, so I was living in a house with a couple of buddies that we were renting. Okay. And then I thought, okay, well I need to buy one. So went to the bank, got my pre-approval, um, 
made sure I had the buying power in place to make it happen. And then I kind of pulled the friends and said, hey, if I found a different house for us to live in, would you guys still want to be my roommates? And they said, yeah, we're having a great time. And, you know, they even got to have a little bit of input in the house. I, I narrowed it down to two finalists and, you know, it was a group of uh, 20-year-old dudes touring a couple of houses, and we kind of had a team vote, and they had a decision-making um, influence in the one that I picked as the final choice, and everybody was happy. We just uh, had a moving day all together into the new spot. So is that a, a strategy that you would recommend to, I mean, particularly, um, I don't know, people in their early 20s now? I think it's a fabulous strategy because it allows you to use the primary residence CMHC allowance. So you put a little bit less down and, you know, a lot of young people don't have a ton of equity and net worth yet. So putting 5% down can really be a huge advantage. Um, you know, cohabitating is more popular now than ever. People like living with roomies. They like having, you know, it's like having your second family. If you're living with friends, you really enjoy. So it's a great way to live and it's very, very fun to have people around. And, you know, as the owner of the house, there's perks, your mortgage gets paid down. Um, if you organize it correctly, you might be able to cash flow a little bit or at least decrease your personal monthly budget. And if that property goes up in value, then you get the reward and benefit of being the one who took the risk of buying the house in the first place. And I just think it's a great way to get started because it allows you to do a lot in the investing world with a relatively small amount of resource as a new investor. Oh, that that's great advice. And you were acting as as a realtor for your for your friends for that first property and kind of had it in, in the blood right off the start. So when you bought that second one, what I obviously you had the confidence of that first one went really well. And then you went on to the second one. Kind of walk us through in that meantime, you got your license. What was what were some of the wins that you were picking up along the way that gained your confidence to say, hey, this could be a strategy that I can continue to grow on? Was it continue to be student housing or did you kind of uh, branch off into other other uh, strategies? I started dabbling after the second property was for you know a group of friends. I wanted to try flipping houses. So I bought a few beat up houses and tried my hand at flipping. That one probably wasn't my most successful venture. I'm not particularly handy and my renovation skills are quite poor. So I, I didn't do the best job. And as a result, the houses didn't fetch top dollar. And you know, while we didn't lose money, we definitely didn't make a, much money either flipping those houses. So at that point I said, okay, maybe the buy and hold game is a lot more in line with you know, the way that I like to do things. And so I just started picking away at houses with secondary suites in the basement so that there were two rental incomes coming from one property instead of just one rental income coming from one property. And, you know, for, for about a six, seven years, that was all I bought is, is houses with secondary suites in the basement and built a portfolio of houses like that. And where did you do that? Was that in Vancouver or in Edmonton or both? Uh, it was all in Edmonton at first. So I, I'm born and raised in Edmonton. I went to the University of Alberta and um, my career for the first uh, 10 years of my career was all about Edmonton, Alberta. Now, the reason that we made the inroads to Vancouver and Kelowna uh, is that Edmonton is actually a very popular spot in the Canada landscape to invest in income properties. And so we started building connections with people all across Western Canada, telling them why Edmonton was a great place to invest. And the more connections we made, the more business opportunities presented themselves in other markets. And 
it just was a positive feedback loop. I, you know, I just kept going through the doors of opportunity that presented themselves. And that's led us now to having, you know, our head office in Edmonton and then our BC office in Vancouver. So obviously, you know, you, you acquired the, the many properties in Edmonton and you were, did you start working with property managers? Were you managing themselves? You mentioned you weren't handy. So, uh, you know, if there's maintenance or issues, how were you handling those? Because I know as you start scaling one or two, maybe you can handle, as you started acquiring all those, how did you handle the, the work, the constant, uh, you know, management of these properties? Yeah. Well, as a younger person, you know, I, I had a lot of energy and a lot of time on my hands and was perfectly happy to do the management myself. Um, so probably the first three or four years, I did all the property management myself. Anything that was super basic, um, you know, painting or mending things, changing door handles, that kind of stuff I was able to do myself. But anything that required any degree of complexity, I had a handyman um, who was just great. You know, we had a great relationship and um, anytime anything was broken, I'd call him up to fix it. I trusted his pricing. He was a really friendly, nice person, was able to have a good rapport with the tenants. And, um, you know, ultimately that was how I managed it first. I hit a certain point in my growth where I was so busy as a realtor and I had so many properties that I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to take the plunge into hiring an actual property management firm to manage these properties on my behalf. And, um, you know, I've had property management pretty much ever since. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by LegalSecondSuites.com. Ken Beckendam is an amazing real estate investor. He understands the process of the conversion inside and out. And he has built one of the largest by volume design build firms in the GTA that specializes in legal multifamily conversions, anywhere from two to 15 units. And he's been involved in either the designer or the contractor in well over 250 conversion projects, which resulted in over 600 legal dwelling units. That is a lot of legal dwelling units. And Ken and his team at Legal Second Suites, they cover everywhere from Halton, Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, Brant, Hamilton, London, Tri-Cities, Barrie, York, and anything in between. He's one of the few firms that can complete the entire process for you from design to construction to property management. So it's truly a one-stop shop. So reach out to Ken at LegalSecondSuites.com. Again, it is LegalSecondSuites.com. And now back to the show. So what would you say then in terms of, at least up, up to now, uh, were you happiest about in terms of your real estate investing career? Is it, is it, and actually how many doors do you have right now? My portfolio is just over 250 units. Um, that's a mix now of houses, a few Airbnb properties, uh, houses with secondary suites, side-by-side -side duplexes with secondary suites. So kind of like a fourplex. And then I've got a, a collection of multifamily apartment buildings as well in my portfolio. Okay. So what would you say then was your, was your biggest win looking back? Like what, do, what are you proudest of? Like, what did you go? Wow. I am so glad I did that. Yeah. I think that making the jump into multifamily was a huge milestone for me because I had to learn how commercial financing worked. I had to learn how to analyze commercial buildings you know, I got to use a lot of the skills and knowledge that I built in the single family world to level up, but multifamily was a whole new um, ball game to be playing in. And it was really exciting to be a part of that. So that first apartment building, I was quite proud of because we, we bit off a heck of a lot to chew. Not only did we buy the apartment building, but it was also 
a repositioning project. So we had to manage the renovation of an entire 12 unit apartment building, all the suites, um, roof, windows, siding, hallways, the works. So it was a, a massive project budget and a lot of moving parts. And we did a really nice job of it. And we got a couple hundred thousand dollars of equity out the back end when we um, repositioned the rents and refinanced. So that was a pretty cool feeling to do a fairly ambitious first multifamily and have it still work out quite well for us. That's, that's phenomenal. And I guess, you know, when people might hear, okay, 250 doors, you know, multiple apartment buildings, side-by-side fourplexes, some people might get a little bit of, you know, anxiety and go, oh my gosh, I'm maybe looking for my first property. Or there are those investors that are looking to scale and say, hey, I have those duplexes and triplexes. Now I want to get into that larger multifamily. What advice would you give them? And, and, and I have a follow-up question. So what advice yeah. to, for going to the residential into the large multi? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess my first piece of advice is, is that, uh, you know, slow and steady wins the race. Um, if you rush things, it's easy to make mistakes or to make or to have your risk tolerance uh, go higher than your actual risk tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I, I may be young in human years, but in real estate years, I mean, I've been at this for, you know, over a decade and a half. So, you know, I say anybody who's just getting started, give yourself 15 years. It doesn't all have to happen overnight. And um, sometimes, you know, you'll have a perfect opportunity that you were being patient will show up. And, you know, for us, we acquired uh, a two unit portfolio that added 80 doors to my personal portfolio in one acquisition. So, you know, it, it doesn't all happen at a easy, predictable pace either. So it's all about just being focused and measured and consistently working towards your goals and waiting for opportunities that make sense. So, you know, it's, you can't stress out about somebody who's been doing something for a very, very long time. If you're just getting started in terms of making the jump from single family to multifamily, it's, I mean, there's two schools of thought. If you, if you're listening to this and you're a high net worth individual who just happens to have never dabbled in real estate, well, maybe going straight into multifamily makes sense. But if you're a new investor and you're using a lot of other people's money through joint ventures and private lending and whatnot, you know, smaller properties represent smaller risk because there's less money in play. And um, the cost of doing transactions in single family significantly less. For example, if you're buying a single family property, you know, a home inspection nowadays runs you, let's call it 750 bucks. And if it doesn't work out, so be it. If you want to get a building condition assessment, engineering and environmental report on a, you know, a 12 unit apartment building, that, that can be a five to $7,000 report. You have to pay for the appraiser. The bank doesn't pay for the appraiser. So that's, you know, that's another few thousand dollars. Often you have to pay the mortgage broker's lending fee, whereas in residential, the bank pays the mortgage broker's lending fee. So that's another few thousand bucks. You know, there's, you can easily spend 10, $15,000 on a building that you decide not to buy in multifamily, whereas in single family, you might spend a couple thousand bucks. In addition to that, um, you know, the reserve fund on a $500,000 house is very, very different than the reserve fund you'll need on a $5 million building. So a lot of people look at investing in real estate and say, oh, I need 20% down. Okay. And then they just calculate it on 20% down. But in the commercial world, even, you know, you, you want to budget almost 10% of the price of the building just for contingency and closing costs. So the first thing I would say is just make sure that it's, it's something you've got the resources for, because it's very, very capital intensive. Um, it can, it can go very poorly if you have just the bare minimum for just your down payment with no buffers for 
anything else. Um, and, and the second thing I would say is really understand and take the time to level up your math game because multifamily valuation is really just an exercise in, in running the budget on the property to come up with the net operating income. So, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you don't like spreadsheets and you don't like math, then I would say figure out how to, you know, take a spoonful of sugar to make that medicine go down or partner with somebody who is very inclined on running the numbers because it's much more intensive on the mathematical relationship between the rents, the expenses, and the prevailing capitalization rate in a marketplace to derive building value. Whereas in single family, it's more so, well, if the neighbor sold for 500, I'm worth 500. And if my rent is higher than my expenses, I'm good to go. The math, the, and that's about as far as it gets, which is still fairly you know, complex math, but the math involved in being confident in multifamily is an order of magnitude higher. So whatever process one needs to go through to learn and be comfortable with how that math works, that's a very, very critical first step in my opinion. So to, to I guess to paraphrase that a bit, it's like, it sounds like you're saying, if you're comfortable uh, in sort of working in the world of comparables, right? Because you compare this house with that house down the street, the same number yeah. of beds, the same, you know, basically the same neighborhood. Um, and if you're comfortable with that and you like it, then there's, unless there's a driving reason to go to a multifamily, and that could be any reason, doesn't really matter. You know, you're probably just as well, as to, uh, just as, as good to stay where you are because you brought up some really interesting points about the um, about the math and the amount of money that you have to have behind you because a lot of people think that oh I can go to to a, a, a multifamily building and it's commercial so now I don't have to worry about my income and you know there's all kinds of things but not understanding that just because you're not maybe the bank isn't looking at you as a person buying a home. There's still going to be a lot of questions about the value of the property, what you can do with it, how you can get the lift in the property and all those things, right? Totally. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's complex, but I, I mean, I wouldn't describe myself as a math guy. So I feel like if I can learn it, anybody can learn it. And, you know, I mean, everybody's going to learn at a different pace. So again, don't rush yourself. You know, it might take you six months of research and learning and understanding. And then all of a sudden the right opportunity pops up and there you have it. You're ready to make the acquisition. So, you know, we're talking about the numbers. You mentioned a little bit in your explanation of, you know, we're using other people's money and partners totally. and, and the benefits. So maybe walk us through, you know, you said you acquired 80 units in one, one swoop, you know, yeah. we talk about commercial lending. How, how have you been able to joint, uh, to create successful joint venture partnerships What's something that your partners can expect with you? What's something that you expect from your partners? How, how do you prescribe you know, the, the ultimate marriage when it comes to joint venture partnerships in, in, in your business? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great question about joint ventures. And there's a few layers to it. So I'll try to get into it. I'd say the first kind of the balancing act that always exists with joint venturing is, do you find the deal first or do you find the partner first? And you know, I, I personally think that both of those things should happen in tangent. Um, because if the perfect deal, as they say, often attracts money, but you still want to have an idea and a list and a collection of people who at least have put up their hand and said, Hey, if a cool real estate deal comes up, I'd love to talk about it. So I would say that, you know, you, if you're serious about building a real estate portfolio, 
with joint ventures, just start talking to everybody you network with and, you know, kind of measure their temperature. Are they interested in real estate? Are they interested in doing a deal? How much capital would they have? What kind of deals are they interested in doing? And just create a little database of who's interested in what, and then start, you know, finding deals that match the criteria of yourself and the majority of the investors that you've talked to. So, you know, for example, you've talked to five people who are interested in multifamilies, all under 2 million. They've all got a couple hundred thousand to invest. They'd like something in an up and coming neighborhood in Edmonton. Okay, I've got five people. So I'm going to go out and find a building that's under 2 million, that's in an up and coming area that, you know, doesn't require more capital than I have access to. And then it's all about getting that property tied up and oh, you're off to the races to find a joint venture partner. For me, one of the more important criteria for my joint venture partner is number one, understanding what involvement they want in the property. If you're going to be the managing partner, it's really redundant to have people who claim to be cash partners actually wanting to have decision-making authority every week, every month, having a conversation about everything that happens, wanting an update every couple of days. It's all about setting good boundaries of, you know, if it's a quarterly update, they get a quarterly update. If they want an annual report, you give them an annual report. But just making sure that we're not stepping on each other's toes and we can have a good working vibe. The other piece that I really want to make sure is in alignment is the exit strategy. For example, I don't want a partner who thinks that they want to sell and get their money back in two years if the project's going to take a minimum of five years. The reason five years is such a nice, neat number is because your average mortgage term is a five-year term. So operating joint ventures on successive five-year terms is just nice, easy math that lines up with how the banks operate. And again, you want joint venture partners that share your vision of how the property is going to go. For example, we have a property that's on a very large piece of land. It's a very small apartment building, and it's in a growth area that we'll be having a major infrastructure project happen in about five years. We're building a new uh, metro line through that part of town. I say we, the city of Edmonton. I'm a, I'm a citizen. I'll take, take it as a we. And uh, so, you know, we know that probably 10 years down the road, we've got a nice big piece of land with an older building on it that'll make very, very good sense to build maybe a, a, a low-rise tower with podium or maybe a wood frame building or something neat. Who knows what? But the market will tell us in that time frame what makes sense to build on that. Well, if we have partners who want out in five years, having a 10 to 15 year vision of buy, hold, build equity and redevelop isn't in alignment. So it's nice to have those conversations up front. Um, so to kind of summarize the answer, number one, expectations on reporting, communication and workflow. And number two, expectations on exit strategy is a really good place to start to see if there's a good fit for partners because them having money and wanting to buy real estate isn't the only reason you should partner with somebody. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Right Club Nation, let's take a quick minute here to meet our sponsor for the week, Blackjack Contracting. They've been serving Niagara, Hamilton, and Brantford areas, and for the past three years, becoming the area's largest basement suite renovation specialist. That's right, and Blackjack works with real estate investors, both new and experienced, converting single-family homes into multiple legal suites and renovating properties to achieve their maximum potential and value. Absolutely. And they've completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls and everywhere in between. They handle everything from permitting and design to final cleaning before you list your rentals. And they also have fully licensed electrical contractors certified with the ESA and take jobs of all sizes. 
Make sure to check them out at blackjackcontractinginc.ca and also follow them on social media at blackjackcontractinginc. And they say investing can sometimes feel like the biggest gamble of your life, but when you have blackjack on your side, the house always wins. So now, back to the podcast. And now, back to the show. So, um, okay, so I'm going to follow up on that then. What are other reasons to partner? Because if, if, if it's not just money, what are other reasons? Why would you, why would you bring somebody in as a, on a joint venture if it wasn't about the money? Uh, that's, you know, that's a great question. So there's, so for me, when I do joint ventures, I always operate as a managing partner. So I want to make sure I'm partnering with people who have capital to invest. Um, but on the flip side of the coin, if you have capital to invest, then you want somebody that fills gaps that you have. So, you know, the typical ingredients um, that go into a good joint venture deal are number one, there's, you know, cash involved. Somebody's got to have equity. Number two, typically borrowing power. Usually the bank or some other lender is going to be um, party to the transaction and they're going to have criteria upon which they lend. And so you need to make sure that the partnership or at least a key part of that partnership has the borrowing power to match those criteria. Um, Someone to do the ongoing management of the property. So, you know, at a very basic level, that's making sure that the place always has tenants who are paying rent and that the property is in a good state of repair on a more complex transaction, maybe there's a renovation required at the onset of the project, or maybe there's some redevelopment associated with the project. So someone who can manage whatever stuff needs to happen. And the fourth ingredient is just the subject property, finding the deal and architecting who's going to be a part of what. Now, usually, um, you know, there's one partner who brings cash. There's one partner who is management and deal acquisition. And then the borrowing power I find often can go either way. Sometimes it's one partner that brings it. Sometimes both do it together. Um, You know, that one's usually a blend of what the prevailing lending rules of the day are and who the partners are in terms of their, their collective borrowing power. Yeah, no, great explanation of, you know, the equity, the financing, the management and the actual property. Guys, if you haven't been able to pick up on this, James has done this plenty of times and it makes it sound very simple in a nice, calm and soothing voice as well, too. Um, So what are your future plans? Like, you know, you, you seem, you've done this for, you said, you know, almost, you know, 15 years, Um, you know, you've, you've, you've acquired almost, you know, you said 250 doors, you're continuing to find, you know, great properties, great areas, partnering with people so they can go and expand their portfolios. What gets you up every day? What makes you motivated to kind of continue to do this? And and what, what do you see as you move forward? Going forward in the future, my, my plans, uh, kind of are existing on two parallel tracks. Track number one is as a realtor at, with the real estate career, we really want to solidify our presence in Western Canada. And over the next five years, we want to have a functioning team office in all the major cities, Edmonton, Calgary, Kelowna, Vancouver, Victoria. You know, if we have a, a nice um, solid foothold in each of those markets, it should solidify our place as one of the top real estate firms in Western Canada for you know, investors is a huge focus of ours, but also, you know, regular people buying and selling their homes. So that's, that's expansion track. Number one on the portfolio side, on the real estate investor side, um, you know, I kind of, a good analogy would be in my portfolio is like a garden. And at this point, it's more about um, maintenance of that garden, as opposed to trying to grow it bigger and bigger. So what, what things that I'll be doing is number one, deleveraging. So it's very popular when, 
you know, you're starting out your portfolio to go higher leverage, make more acquisitions, maybe take a few risks for the sake of growth. At this point, I've got the amount of property that I want. So I'm trying to deleverage that property, more equity, less debt, and, you know, remove some of the underperforming properties from my portfolio and only very selectively add ones that are like, you know, 11 out of 10 in terms of criteria, knowing that I very selectively picked properties on pieces of land that will make sense to develop one day. So I don't want to have to go through another round of partnership and capital raising to find the funds to develop. By the time it makes sense to develop most of those properties, I'd like them to be either debt-free or close to debt-free so that we can use the equity in the properties as the capital um, for developing them. So that's kind of that's kind of the next round is just letting the market grow the way that it needs to grow. And it will let us know when it's time to look at redeveloping some of these properties because the opportunities are just going to make sense. So that's that's the two trajectories for the two main pillars of my career is, you know, grow our real estate team, find great realtors in the major cities that want to be a part of our organization that match our culture and that love helping people buy investment properties. And then, you know, take my portfolio and just let that leverage deleverage itself, replace debt with equity. And then when the time is right, start looking at redeveloping some of these pieces of property that I have. And it sounds to me like the um, when we were talking about you know the deleveraging strategy and uh, and everything else that you talked about around um, joint uh, going into joint ventures and all the rest of it, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about a multifamily like a large multifamily um, residence right or twelve or twenty four or whatever fifty units or single family homes because really when push comes to shove, you are talking about the same thing. You can deleverage your single family holdings, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the, the ones that I've, I've definitely deleveraged the houses as well. So, you know, every, every property, I, I, I call it a bit of an old school thinking because especially with interest rates being as inexpensive as they are, a lot of people are like, oh, the money's so cheap, borrow more of it. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, the money's so cheap. I can pay down the mortgages faster. So, you know, I mean, it's definitely a different way of thinking, but I personally feel that, you know, the, the, one of the safest places to be from a wealth creation perspective is to own top quality assets and top quality locations with no debt on them. And uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm pushing towards. Wow. So in another 15 years, if we come to, to talk to James, you're going to be what, sitting in your, mm, I don't know, your ski resort, because I know you're a skier, right? <laughs> Very likely, yeah. I've even got my little ski mountain right here. Yeah, I saw that in the background. I mean, if you're listening to this, you don't see it, but James has a picture of his of his mountains in the on the back of it on his office. And so you're going to be skiing from the resort that you own in one of these, um, uh, I don't know, somewhere out in BC or Alberta or wherever it is. Maybe it's uh, Austria. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> you're just like you don't have you have little uh, little debt, and you're enjoying life. I sure hope so. Um, I'm also a big believer in, you know, I mean, COVID was a wacky time and, you know, a lot of bad things happened. But one of the good things that happened is it taught us how to work remotely a lot more effectively, especially in the real estate space, which is traditionally something that, you know, it was assumed had to be done live in person, face to face. And, you know, right now we're using Zoom and other camera related technologies. But, you know, I, I see, you know, another five to 10 years and using, tools like Matterport to take virtual walkthroughs of spaces 
in addition with putting on VR goggles in the metaverse, you know, even the real estate profession is going to become more and more remote. And so I'm really looking forward to, from a lifestyle by design perspective, not really stepping away from real estate, but making um, my real estate career as a practicing real estate professional, not location specific as often as it currently needs to be. And uh, so I'm, I'm very, very bullish on the future of technology in, in that way and the positive implications it's going to have on our industry um, from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, definitely. The technology is getting better and better and the, the selfie video walking through properties are, are going to continue to improve uh, of actually being there in person versus, you know, just on, on your handheld cell phone. But, uh, but James, yeah. a great, great insights. Um, I think we've reached uh, the point of the podcast that we're going to do uh, our lightning round. So James, are you ready for the lightning round? Hit me with it. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Butler Mortgages, Canada's number one mortgage brokerage three years in a row. If you need a great mortgage broker to help you with investing in real estate or to help you purchase your next home, reach out to Daniel Patton and Michael Zanzini from Butler Mortgages. You can do that by calling 905-569-8326 or toll free at one 888 and check out their website, butlermortgages.com or by email daniel.patton at butlermortgages.com or michael.zanzini at butlermortgages.com. And let's go to the lightning round. All right, Laurel, you want to okay. start us off? So all you have to do is give, give us the first answer that comes off the top of your head. It's not, it's not hard. What's the best advice you've ever received from another investor or at a networking event? I would say that the best advice I've ever received is beware leverage. It's very easy to say, oh, I have a thousand percent ROI because I put next to no money down on this property, but more debt always means more risk. The more debt you take on, the more payments you're making and the more exposure you have. So, you know, just because you can leverage something more highly doesn't necessarily mean you should. Great, great perspective, which is, you know, Kind of counterintuitive to what the common, uh, you know, common advice is out there these days. So that that's really great advice. All right, question number two: What is your favorite resource for real estate investing? My favorite resource for real estate investing, I typically really enjoy books. Actually, I I like to be able to sit back and read something reread something you know i mean i went to school at a time where we didn't have laptops in school or ipads or anything like that like we had to write our we had to scribble our notes down in a coil ring binder so just having a physical book to write notes in the margins and highlight pages that that's kind of how my brain operates and um i find that's a really really good resource because typically you know if someone's going to the effort to put a book together it's a often a very well curated piece of content where you know something that's on youtube or a lot of pre-recorded stuff for people speaking off the cuff. Um, I find books typically a little bit more thought goes into them and it gives you a chance to read something, reread it, think about it, reread it. Um, I also like books that are almost written like workbooks or textbooks. Um, you know, there's a lot of really good real estate books out there where they'll have spreadsheets or flow charts or process charts and uh, to really help you wrap your head around the bits and bytes of the business of real estate. All right. And I have to ask any, any suggestions, top two, top three that you yeah. would put out there in any of the books? That I you would read? say, I would say from a mindset piece, rich dad, poor dad, understanding the quote unquote cash flow quadrant 
is uh, a really, really important um, aha moment that I think all investors need to wrap their head around. And then, you know, one of the one of the classics would be 97 Tips for Real Estate Investors by Don Campbell. Um, you know, a lot of the advice he gives is still relevant to this day, even though the book is pushing 20 years old now. Yeah, those, those are really good books. And like, they're almost like, uh, they're really good reference books that you can go back and, and read them again and again and again. And the thing yeah. about books like that is that if, if they're really well written, um, every time you dip into them, you come away with something new, a different perspective, a different thought, something caught your, your attention that it didn't before. So yeah, I agree with you. I have dozens and dozens of books. All right, question number three. What is the attribute? What's the one attribute that you think has made you successful? Uh, I think it's understanding that it's important to take care of yourself. Um, I've really leaned into that throughout my entire career is, you know, I mean, I was doing self-care before people started talking about self-care. And, uh, you know, I think it's really important that another way of thinking about it is nobody wants to do business with somebody that's cranky, grumpy, tired, unmotivated, you know, tell me what's going on. Eh, how's it going? It's going, but you know, sometimes it's challenging to put on that positive energy and that happy face, unless you've invested in yourself to put yourself in a good headspace. So, you know, I think the most important investment you can make of time is in yourself, because if you invest in yourself to be in a positive mindset, if you invest in yourself to be, you know, generally happier and more joyful, if you invest in yourself to be more enthusiastic and energetic, and if you're well-rested so you can actually bring your best self to the table, well, there's a much higher likelihood that that joint venture partner is going to say yes when you have a conversation coming from that place. It's much more likely that that realtor is going to want to put you on their A-list because you seem like the kind of person who's got pizzazz and can close a deal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the key to it isn't, you know, doing some mental gymnastics to force yourself to be in a good mood when you feel like crap. It's actually going a level deeper and nurturing yourself, taking care of yourself and putting standing appointments in your calendar where you do the sorts of things that put you in that headspace. And so that's, that's something that served me incredibly well is understanding that if I show up as my best self, that's when the magic happens. And so I need to invest in being my best self first so that I show up in that way. That's very profound, great advice. And, you know, for those that are listening to this, hit rewind, listen to that again. That's fantastic advice. And, you know, it leads into the last question, question number four of the lightning round. What are you typically doing on a Sunday morning? Going for brunch. And if it's season on, we're watching NFL while we're having that Sunday brunch. And if it's season off, then probably eating brunch and then hitting the ski hill. Good for you. I mean, that's the way to do it, right? Enjoy life. Because why, why are we doing this all if it, if it isn't to enjoy life? Absolutely. Couple. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a... You know, some people talk about work-life balance. I'm a more of a work-life integration. Um, you know, for example, I just got back from three days at Big White and the people I was skiing with were a real estate developer who were looking at project marketing for, a couple of past clients who were with their friends who are very likely going to become future clients and cross paths with uh, one of my business partners on Sunday on our way back from the mountain. So, you know, I was doing the thing I love the most, which is skiing. And yet fostering and nurturing relationships, which have and will lead to, to business opportunities as well. So I think that's the real, that's the real beauty of it is if you do the things you like to do and you do them with other people, chances are those relationships will lead to opportunity at some point. 
I, I agree with you 100%. I use the term work-life harmony, it's, but it's the same thing. It means exactly yeah. the same thing. Because like Harmony you, is a perfect word. I don't believe in work-life balance. It's just like what a crock. It just doesn't exist. So, but if you're in harmony, if you're in, everything's integrated, then things work smoothly. And you attract what you need to attract. It's so true. When you put out positive vibes, people will get attracted to them. So that's great. So James, where can people reach you? How can they reach you? Yeah. Um, well, we're all plugged in on social media. So if you check my name out on any of the channels, you'll find me. Uh, but the quickest and easiest way to initiate a conversation would be james at mogulrg.com, M-O-G-U-L-R-G.com. Or if you don't want to have a conversation, you just want to check out what we're up to, um, check out our website, M-O-G-U-L-R-G.com, mogulrg.com, or at mogulrg on any channel you can imagine. We're on all of them. That's great. Thank you so very, very much. Hey, it's been my pleasure. This has been a great conversation. It's It's gotten me excited all over again about real estate. Every time I talk about it with, with people who are as plugged in as you guys, it just gives me energy. So thank you for the chance to chat. Okay, Thanks, great. James. Bye. Okay, Alfonso. Wow. Like there's a lot to think about there, isn't there? And and um, I'm going to ask you what, what your biggest takeaway uh, is, but I'm going to just jump in there and tell you what my biggest takeaway was. And that was at the very end when he talked about being the best person he can be to show up. And once you do that, then everything just falls in place. Funny how that works, right? If you're the very best person you can be, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but just the best person that you can be, then the magic happens. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he mentioned alignment with partners and joint ventures, but I think alignment with self, alignment with what you want to achieve, those personal goals of that sense of peace. Everybody wants that in their own life. Nobody wants hectic, frantic. Yeah, sure. Some moments, some excitement, getting the heart rate up. That's always, that's always fun. You know, he's, he's also a skier. So I'm sure there's adrenaline that goes through when you're going down those hills, but you have to have a plan on how you get to that bottom of that mountain. You can't just close your eyes and hope for the best. That's not usually a good plan on definitely not skiing and, and definitely not in real estate investing. But uh, my, my biggest takeaway is, you know, the setting the boundaries with joint venture partners, right? And he says it's redundant. If both want to be managing partners, well, what if you call two things that are the same? Well, one too many, right? And, you know, you have to have those different those different strengths to make a great partnership. And, and the four pieces of the equity, the financing, the management, and the actual project itself, the actual deal itself, putting those in order and, and getting that uh, getting that all aligned, I think was was my biggest takeaway, of course, with, you know, aligning yourself, uh, making sure that uh, that you are in that best position. So great conversation. Uh, we're going to be definitely talking to James a lot more in the future on the Right Club community, probably have him back for another podcast. And um, yeah, and just continue to learn from the amazing people in our community. And James is no different. Yeah. Absolutely. So everybody, please go to the website, uh, therightclub.com, uh, sign up, get our newsletter, check out our videos, and, you know, go and listen to podcasts that you haven't listened to before. There's all kinds of resources there. It's there for you. Um, go grab it, you know, and, and help, make, help. we want to help you make that great life. In fact, we want to help you customize your life. Yes, we'll see you next time. And thanks so much for listening. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Right Club podcast and joining our community of real estate investors online at therightclub.com, where the focus is about helping you grow. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks from your hosts, Sarah Larby and Alfonso Salemi.